It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Kay Wenigal and today I'm joined by my co-host Michael Steindall. Good morning Kay. How are you? <laughs> Good, thank you. We're well, missing Laura today. She's not well, and I hope she gets and better soon. And you're struggling a bit too. Today we're going to be speaking to Acacia Pepler, who is a PhD student at the University of New South Wales Climate Change Research Centre, where she studies extreme rainfall and east coast lows on both observation and regional climate models. Her research is focused on better understanding of the influences of the Great Dividing Range in the East Australian current in the East Coast low behaviour, as well as understanding possible future changes. She has a Bachelor of Science from Macquarie University, majoring in Physics and Atmospheric Science, as well as a Master's of Philosophy in Radio Meteorology. Welcome, Acacia. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, we normally start off by talking about how you got involved in this area of research in the beginning. Well, I'm from a family who's always been interested in the weather, the type of family where you know, when there's a big thunderstorm coming, you all go outside and stand together and watch the lightning and get excited about how close or how far away it is. And I've always loved science. So it was kind of obvious that I'd end up studying some sort of science at university. I actually started out in astronomy, but in my first year I did an atmospheric science subject just you know, for fun, for an elective. And I was reminded just how fascinating doing atmospheric science is and changed my major to be physics and atmospheric science. And since then, I've been doing weather and climate-related stuff ever since because I love understanding how the world works and you know, learning more about things. And weather is such a great area because it's impacting our day-to-day lives. We see its effects all the time, and it's just a really fascinating thing to study. Mm, mm, it certainly does impact now on our lives, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, so flowing straight on from that, uh, tell us about your current research work. So what I'm studying are East Coast lows, which it's kind of a nice thing to study because if you live in Sydney like I do, everybody knows what an East Coast low is. Everybody remembers the Tasha Bolka storm in 2007 when there was a ship that was that got stuck on the beach up near Newcastle and everybody pays attention when the really big East Coast lows happen, like... Um, the one earlier this year, which had all of the photos of the pool that fell off on the beach in Collaroy. Yeah, we certainly saw that on the news here. (laughs) Yeah, so it's the sort of subjects that, you know, everybody's interested in and it's really easy to talk about. And why I got into East Coast Lows is just because there's something that happens all the time in the area that I live, but hadn't previously been maybe as well studied as they should have been. And what I've been really trying to learn more about is why they happen and why they happen so much here. So things like why um, does the really warm sea surface temperatures from the East Australian current play a role in them and how? 
is the Great Dividing Range really important? And, you know, throwing in a bit of climate change projections in there as well because that's always interesting. Mm-hmm. I've never actually heard the term East Coast Low, so um, can you tell us what it actually is and when it occurs? So East Coast Low sort of means what it sounds like. It's a low-pressure system or a cyclone. That's just another name for a low-pressure system. That happens on the east coast of Australia. And when we're talking east coast, we're talking between sort of Brisbane, Fraser Island, up in southeast Queensland, down to eastern Victoria. And what makes the east coast really interesting is that we sort of get these low-pressure systems from all sorts of areas. We can get um, big tropical cyclones from northern Australia can make their way down the coast and affect us. Things that come out of the south, so the extra tropical cyclones that you see running through those storm tracks south of Australia with all the cold fronts, they can come north. But we also get these cyclones that develop right on the coast. So in an area of lower pressure on the coast, one day there's just you know, sort of a normal lower pressure area on the coast. The next day there's a low pressure system. So they can develop really quickly, and which makes them a bit of a challenge for weather forecasters sometimes because four or five days ahead they know there's going to be a low somewhere but not exactly where on the coast it will be. And they can also um, hang around for a day or two and cause those really persistently heavy rain, strong winds, um, high seas, coastal erosion and a lot of the really bad severe weather we get on the east coast tends to be due to these east coast lows. Just picking up on your accent there, Acacia, do they extend out as far as New Zealand? <laughs> well, cyclones occur all around the world in one form or another. But when we talk about East Coast lows, we're talking about the East Coast of Australia. Just locally. And some of the cyclones you get here are pretty special. It's, there's only a few places in the world that are like us. So, for instance, um, the East Coast of the US also gets some of these same sorts of systems. But New Zealand definitely gets cyclones, but they don't get our East Coast lows. Okay. So you said that they can occur literally out of the blue. Um, What's causing that? Or is it a single cause? Are there multiple causes? Well, as I was saying, East Coast lows can form from a whole bunch of situations, but the ones that come um, up overnight tend to share a few characteristics. There's there's usually um, some really cold air that's in the upper levels of the atmosphere, so you know, kilometres above our head. And when that sort of moves over the east coast and meets up with the very warm sea surface temperatures of the East Australian current, you start to have that low-pressure system developing on the surface, so where we live. And the interaction between those upper levels and the lower levels helps the, low, the cyclone get really strong. But what makes them tricky is that you know the upper-level cold pool is coming over, you know that the conditions are right for an East Coast low to develop. But what you don't know is whether it's going to be at Port Macquarie or at Sydney. And so the forecasters will often be there, you know, four or five days ahead, just not quite sure where the the most severe weather is going to be along the coast because it depends on where the low eventually decides to form. So it's more a matter of not knowing where rather than not knowing if or when. Yeah, definitely that. So um, in the past, When we didn't have the amazing weather forecasting models we have now, things like East Coast lows could absolutely be a complete surprise and turn up overnight. But these days, we have great models and the forecasters can do so much more than they used to be able to do. And so they usually know um, five, seven days in advance that an East Coast low is likely to come. 
the questions are more about where exactly it's going to form. Does the um, Great Dividing Range influence these and the formation of them? Well, this is something that I've been looking into as part of my research. And what I'm doing in my research is one of the fun things that you can only really do with climate models, you can't do with the real world. <laughs> and it's, I take a climate model and I run it and see what happens and they do a great job at simulating East Coast lows. But then I get rid of the Great Dividing Range and run it again and see what happens to these East Coast lows in the exact same atmospheric situation if there wasn't a Great Dividing Range there. Mm. And what seems to happen from my early results is that the Great Dividing Range plays a bit of a role in intensifying the cyclones. So maybe without the Great Dividing Range, they wouldn't get quite as strong. And of course, it also plays a role in how much rain we get out of an East Coast low, because when we have an East Coast low, you have the heaviest rain on the south side of the low, where you've got those strong easterly winds taking the moisture off the ocean and hitting into the Great Dividing Range, which causes it to rise up and cause a lot of rain. So without the Great Dividing Range, we might not get quite as much rain out of those easterly winds from the south side of the East Coast low. But I suppose that all makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's heading, what is it, south-west, um, is it? When it's coming from the north, it's heading down the east coast and, and so it's running parallel to the Great Dividing Range, essentially, isn't it? Or is it actually coming, is it a non-shore effect? Yeah, you're right. They do move up and down the coast parallel to the Great Dividing Range. And, I mean, you're right. We do know it makes sense that the Great Dividing Range will have an impact on East Coast lows in this sort of fashion. But just because something makes sense doesn't mean it's necessarily true, and that's one of the things about being a scientist generally is that, I mean, look at things like quantum physics. That doesn't make sense at all, but it's true. And so it's useful as a scientist, even with things that might be, well, it's obvious that Great Dividing Range causes this sort of effect, or it's obvious that having warmer sea surface temperatures gives more water to East Coast lows. It's still useful to actually run the simulations, do the changes, so you can start to see how strong the impact is, but also see if your assumptions are wrong. Acacia, you give examples in, in some of the stuff you've published of low-pressure systems developing, like from Cyclone Oswald causing the city of flooding in 2013 and extratropical cyclone, which affected the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race um, back in 1998 and many deaths. What's the difference between a, between tropical and extratropical cyclones? Well, when we say cyclone, all the word cyclone really means is an area of low pressure mm -hmm. that has cyclonic winds around it. And in the southern hemisphere, cyclonic just means clockwise. But oh. the difference between tropical and extratropical cyclones is sort of about, it's a bit complicated because it's about the processes that are going on in the atmosphere, about how they develop and how they remain. But for a tropical cyclone, they get a lot of the energy from very warm sea surface temperatures. And so tropical cyclones can only form where you have sea surface temperatures above about 26 degrees Celsius. So they need those really warm sea surface temperatures and they develop and they continue going. And when you look at a tropical cyclone, they tend to be very symmetrical. So a beautiful classic tropical cyclone mm -hmm. will be a very symmetric um, circle with that clear eye wall in the middle and it just keeps going driven by those really warm sea surface temperatures. 
Yeah. Now, when we talk about extratropical cyclones, extratropical kind of just means not tropical. So it's the extratropics are the places that are like 40 degrees south and further south. So extratropical cyclones are the ones we see in those big storm tracks south of Australia. And they develop from differences in temperature between warmer and colder air masses. And they're very asymmetrical. So your typical extratropical cyclone will, for instance, have a strong cold front coming out of it. And those cold fronts, of course, are very important for the rain we get in places like um, southwest WA and South Australia and Victoria. They get a lot of their rain from those extratropical cyclones with their cold fronts. Tropical cyclones don't have fronts. Okay. But what and is... East Coast lows can be any of them. You can They are often actually what we call subtropical cyclones, which have some of the elements of tropical cyclones and some of the elements of extratropical cyclones. So it's kind of complex sometimes. Mm. What if a cyclone hits a cold front? And, and is so, that what happened um, during the Sydney to Hobart yacht race in 1998? So uh, the Sydney to Hobart yacht race was <coughs> a big extratropical cyclone, so it had fronts attached to it, if I recall correctly. Oh, but okay. we can absolutely have what we call... Um, tropical transitions. So when you get a real tropical cyclone that moves south and gets away from the proper tropical cyclone areas, sometimes it will just decay and die because it doesn't have the sea surface temperature it needs. But sometimes it will interact with the the stuff that's going on further south. So for instance, cold fronts and extra-tropical cyclones. And then it will re-intensify as a strong system. So we call that... um, tropical transition, and that's sort of what went into play with things like um, Hurricane Sandy in the US. You had a tropical cyclone that then interacted with extra-tropical things going on, and they worked to give it to redevelop into a really strong system. Mm-hmm. Okay. For those of you who have just tuned in, you're listening to Beyond Zero Show, and we're talking to Acacia Pepler about extreme weather events along the east coast of Australia. So following on with that, Acacia, um, the sea surface temperatures that you mentioned, a cyclone is the difference, or um, is it just the cyclone? Driven by by the warm seas. It's a difference in temperature between the warm sea and the actual cyclone air temperature. Is that right? So um, the tropical cyclones, it's, the very warm sea surface temperatures that help you with the evaporation and the moisture. Yep. For um, extratropical cyclones, it's differences in... So we, we talk about it in terms of air masses. So when you've got some cold air and some warm air sort of near each other, the interaction between those can help drive the um, circulation, the winds to get the extratropical cyclone um, to develop. So there's temperature involved in all of them, but mm. it's play slightly different roles. Okay. So does that, when we're getting um, an increase in sea temperature now, we're finding that that's increasing every year. Does that mean that these cyclones occur more often? So there are, again, it sort of depends on what type of cyclone you're looking at, and the story can be a bit complex. For tropical cyclones, um, there are a bunch of other things that are in play, but um, warmer sea surface temperatures could absolutely lead to making the most intense cyclones more intense, and there's some um, projection suggesting that's likely, or at least possible, but it, and perhaps also help them get further south. Although it's important to remember that 
tropical cyclones can get further south than we necessarily think of them because in 1954 there was, I think, a Category 3 tropical cyclone that came straight into the Gold Coast. So we've definitely had um, tropical cyclones getting down um, further south than we tend to think of them in the past, and that could definitely be influenced um, influenced by climate change and warming sea surface temperatures. Um, but generally, most of what people suggest, expect with um, extratropical cyclones as the big influence of climate change is that they'll move further south. So every, the tropics will get a little bit wider and everything else starts to move a bit further south. And um, we've started to see that already in Australian areas, and that's been contributing to why we've had um, generally quite dry conditions in southwest Western Australia in, over the last sort of 30-odd years, and then extending into um, Victoria and southeast Australia in the last couple of decades as those um, bigger extratropical cyclones and their fronts move a little bit further south and take away some of the rainfall that those areas would expect. And, and I mean, the other factor, of course, of warmer sea surface temperatures is that, um, or warmer air for that matter, is that we can hold more moisture in the air. So potentially, given that the science says that for every degree Celsius increase, air can hold about 7% more moisture. So that could contribute to making systems be able to give heavier rain from the same sort of system just because there's more moisture in the air. Okay. So um, you you talked also in your publications, Acacia, about the um, regional models versus the global models and um, said that the regional models were, uh, of, if I'm correct, of considerably more use on the work you were doing. Could you tell us about the, the difference between those and, and how how different how you found them better with the regional models? So the thing about running climate models is it takes a long time because they're, you know, calculating all of these different equations that every grid cell that they do that they have uh, that model runs for. And so most global climate models, we run at res resolutions um, like two degrees, which is about 200 kilometres between each grid cell, or the re you know some of the higher resolution ones will be run at one degree, so 100 kilometres between each grid cell. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when you're looking at those sorts of distances, they can't necessarily... You know, it's way too big to, for instance, have a thunderstorm like individually in the model, and there are a lot of things that they have to parameterise. Which, we, which is a science word for basically, instead of using the proper physics equations, using simpler approximations for bigger areas. Yep. And so that can be a problem with things like um, cyclones, especially East Coast lows, because if these are happening on smaller scales, if they're, happen if, you know, if they're happening over 200 kilometres, say, a big um, global model, while well, it's great, doesn't necessarily have the resolution to really get all the detail of the cyclones. Mm -hmm. So global climate models generally have a bit of a problem in replicating um, cyclones like East Coast lows. So the advanced advantages of regional climate models are that you can take the global climate model, which is doing all of the big stuff, so changes to the storm, the, the latitude of the storm tracks and changes to global temperatures and all that sort of stuff, and then you can feed that into a model that's done for a smaller area 
at a higher resolution, so at a 50-kilometer or even 10-kilometer resolution. So you can try to take some of that information we're getting out of the global climate models but then feed it back into a model that can simulate the sorts of smaller-scale weather systems that we care about. And so that's the big advantage of regional climate models, is that they can be run at those higher resolutions, and you can start to see things like cyclones better, and you can start to represent things like the Great Dividing Range better, because higher resolution means that you can also get the mountains better represented, instead of just having a mountain Mm -hmm. then ending straight at the ocean because it's too coarse to identify the strip of flat land between them. Yep, yep. So you're, um, who's doing this modelling? I, I know um, you're part of uh, a multi-institutional team. Can you tell us about that? So the, there are a couple of groups there. So the climate um, regional models that I've been using for my work on climate change in East Coast Road has a part of a project called NACUM, which is the New South Wales ACT Regional Climate Model, I think. And that was um, run at, at my university, at UNSW, but it was um, funded and supported by the New South Wales Office of the Environment and Heritage as part of putting together climate projections for New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And the other group that I'm part of is something called the Eastern Seaboard Climate Change Initiative. And what that is is basically um, a large group of people who care about East Coast lows. So um, my group at the University of New South Wales, um, the Bureau of Meteorology, um, some people at Macquarie University who are doing great work on um, like looking at East Coast lows over history back 100 or 1,000 years, um, people at um, the University of Newcastle who are doing a lot of work on water security and dam levels and how those relate to East Coast lows. And then the New South Wales government, again, drawing us all together so that we can you know, know what each other are working on and help work together on deciding what the priorities are so that we can all do East Coast low research better than if we were all doing it on our own. Mm. And for anyone who's actually interested in reading the science papers, because I know they can be a bit dry, there was actually a special issue of the Australian Journal of Southern Hemisphere Earth System Science which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's a journal that's all about Australian and Southern Hemisphere research, and it's totally free to access. So it's just available online as PDF, and there was a special issue published on some of the work on East Coast Lows just um, a couple of weeks ago, which features people from all of these different universities. That's Journal of Southern Hemisphere Earth Systems Science. That's right. And where do people go to find it? It used to be the Australian Meteorological and Oceanographic Journal, but... We're trying to diversify and let you know get more people from South America and Africa and the Pacific Islands and other areas in the Southern Hemisphere involved, rather than having this Australian focus. Mm. And you mentioned in passing the the effects on water security. Can you comment at all on that? As your research pointed out, any directions there? Well, um, I haven't done as much work on that myself recently, but it's important to remember that East Coast lows are really important for water security on the East Coast. If you look back at, say, um, what Rorogamba Dam levels in Sydney, during the last sort of couple of decades, you remember there was a period where it was really dry. And in June 2007, it was down to, I think, about 35% of its, norm, of its total dam levels. Mm-hmm. And then June 2007 happened. June 2007 had five East Coast lows in a single month. 
including that really big patch of Bulker East Coast low. Yep. And it, by the end of the month, dam levels were 20% higher. So those big East Coast lows, and same thing happened in 1998, actually. So those big East Coast lows are really important for refilling our dams. And so the people at um, Newcastle University are trying to quantify that, so try to really get some strong numbers on how important they are, and then look into if climate projections are suggesting East Coast lows have become less frequent, which is generally what the projections are saying, mm. what does that mean for our water security in places like Sydney and the Hunter Valley, where East Coast lows are really important to our dam level? And in terms of um, the East Coast lows produce, becoming less, less and less, will they also become more intense as time goes on? So there are a couple of ways you can define being more intense. I know that's a fancy-sounding answer. But um, if you look at just the you know, central pressure of the low or the strength of the, um, co- the gradient between the contour lines on a map, mm-hmm. which tends to be how we define intensity, then it's kind of hard to say, but maybe there's going to be no change in the intensity. But of course... People don't necessarily care about those sorts of metrics. They care about are the winds going to get stronger or is the rain going to get heavier? And so in that case, there are other things going on. So, for instance, even though the frequency of East Coast lows, particularly in the winter months, is likely to decrease in the future, because we have these warmer sea surface temperatures and more moisture in the atmosphere, the frequency of East Coast lows that produce heavy rain might not change. And, of course... East Coast lows are also really important for um, highways and coastal erosion and that sort of thing. And we saw just um, in June this year that an East Coast low that happened on top of existing high sea levels because of um, your astronomical tide and that sort of thing mm-hmm. caused quite a lot of coastal damage. Now, if sea levels are you know, half a metre or a metre higher in 100 years, then an East Coast low of the same intensity could very easily be considered more intense in terms of coastal impact mm. because it's happening on those high sea levels so it can cause the really big sea impact. So intensity depends on how you're defining it a bit. Uh, it certainly does, yeah. It's, uh, if you get 300 mil in a couple of days, it's quite different, isn't it? Um, it's true. You could that... get 328 millimetres in a single day from an East Coast low in August 1986 in Sydney, so you can get a lot of rain. Mm. <laughs> Could I just, one final point, uh, okay, you should pick up on that sea level comment. Um, and you just quoted, say, half a metre in, in 100 years. Things like the IPCC reports are typically conservative and, and they're saying maybe a, a metre in 100 years. But James Hansen and, and now last week NASA are talking about three metres by 2050. Uh, I know this is outside your research, but as, as a professional in the area, um, what do you think? Is that possible? Well, obviously, I'm not an expert on sea level rise. The big questions on sea level rise, as far as I understand it, is that there's a certain amount of sea level rise we just get through the oceans expanding because of warming. And I think about half of the sea level rise we've seen so far is due to that. And the others, the glaciers crashing. That's right. So the big concerns are things like parts of the Antarctic ice shelves or parts of Greenland getting to a point where they break off and melt and become sea level. And so, as far as I understand it, there's a lot of uncertainty about what temperature is going to be the tipping point that 
puts us over that threshold. And of course, that's part of why there's this big push to try to limit temperature increases as much yep. as possible. Yep. Because if we go on that highest emissions pathway and start getting you know, on the pathway that gets us to, what is it, three, four degrees by the end of the century, then the chances of us passing the tipping points that could cause those really big sea level rises are much higher, even mm. though we don't quite know at the moment where they are, like at what temperature they are. We mm. know that they're out there. So, I mean, personally, you know, you've always got to be careful about making the big claims that you're going to have these huge these huge impacts by X year. But you know, you've got to be yeah. careful and keep an eye on what the possible um, extreme when, outcomes are. Yeah, when reputations like that are making. Um, I did ask you too big a question too late in case you were out of time. <laughs> very, very quickly, where can our listeners find out more? So um, the Eastern Seaboard Climate Change Initiative okay. is headed by the New South Wales government, so there's a whole bunch about it on the New South right. Wales... They, they can search that. ...website. Yep. So the Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, go to www.bze.org.au and click on the podcast link. You can also find us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. And don't forget our sister show on Monday afternoons, 5pm to 6pm with, with Vivian. Thanks for listening. See you again next week. And, and thank you again, Acacia. Acacia.